You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Mason, who's an independent game developer and creator of the puzzle game Way of Rhea about independent game development. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, Indie Game Dev. Mason, how did you get into indie game dev, of all things? Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. When I was a kid, I was into making like these little short films. They weren't very good. I just kind of was having fun playing with a camera. And at some point, I decided that I wanted to put 3D effects into one of the films. And I didn't know how to do that. If someone had told me about Blender, I guess I, I could have used Blender, but I didn't know about Blender. So I found this game engine, Dim3, and I thought, hey, this is like a 3D thing. Maybe it can put 3D into this movie. Uh, it couldn't, but I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent a while learning how to use it. Concluded, oh, it you know it can't do that. But I had so much fun learning to use it that I started making games with it. It wasn't anything I was taking seriously. I, I was just kind of doing it for fun, and it did lead me to learn how to program. I mean, maybe I knew a little bit how to program before that from messing around with this, but like it made me a better programmer. And I ended up working in tech. I always thought of like doing my own games as like an unrealistic like pipe dream. But when I moved to New York City, I started meeting all these indie game developers in the kind of New York indie scene. And that made me realize like, well, wait a second, like they're taking their game seriously. Why can't I too? And that was like the spark that kind of set me towards trying to actually make a career out of uh, independent games. Very cool. So before you went to New York, what were you doing professionally? Was that you were just like programming for somebody else or doing something other than programming or? I had like an internship at Microsoft while I was in school. And then I moved to New York to work at Google, which wasn't really for me. And I didn't immediately go from, I'm in New York, other people are making indie games. I should quit my job and make indie games. It, you know, it wasn't like that stark of a transition, but it was like, okay, like maybe I should devote more of my free time to this. And then, you know, maybe someday I can quit and do this. And then I actually switched jobs a few times. And then eventually I decided, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, actually make this transition. And at this point, Nick, I still do freelance work. I still teach and stuff, but most days I am focusing on my on my games. That's cool. What, what do you teach? So I've been teaching undergrad and grad students at UCSC. The undergrads I usually teach to use Unity. It's a very popular game engine. And the grad students I usually teach C++ and then how to write game engines in C++. It's kind of like an introductory course. I also have taught OpenGL at CSUMB. We'll see what happens in the future. You know, now that things are going back in person, I don't actually live in that area anymore. That's what I've been teaching in the past. Okay, so you do your own game engine in C++, I assume. Were you doing C++ at Google? So my game engine is actually mostly in Rust, but the platform layer has a lot of C, C++, just because, you know, you got to talk to Windows or, or Mac OS or whatever. Well, I guess Mac OS is Objective-C or Swift, but it's a mix. So at Google, honestly, it was mostly like JavaScript, Python. I think I got started with C++, like C++ was my introduction to low-level programming. I definitely wrote some C++ as a kid, and I had no idea what was going on. Like I made a text adventure or something. It, I'd be afraid to kind of see how that code worked. I think I got seriously into learning to program at a lower level when I decided that I wanted to write a game engine. And that was before I was taking things seriously. At that point, it was still just for fun. As a teenager, I always had a game I was working on. And when I got to college, I kind of didn't have a game I was working on. And I realized like I need a project. I can't just go to class. That's not enough for me. I need I need some project that like some multi-year, you know, giant project that, that I'm always thinking about. 
It's just like kind of the way my brain works. I need some long-term goal. I had kept reading these articles about, I think it started out reading about like different ways of doing soft shadows. And they were like, I didn't know anything about, you know, shaders at the time or, or, or how to write a renderer, but I was just like for fun reading these articles. And I was thinking, this seems like a fun project, but I already have this game engine someone else made that I use and it doesn't have soft shadows, but it has shadows. So I don't know, there's no reason for me to do this. And then I was reading some articles about AI and like pathfinding and object avoidance. And I was like, well, this stuff seems pretty cool, but you know, the game engine I'm using already has pathfinding. It doesn't exactly have object avoidance, but it has pathfinding. And eh, I guess there's no reason for me to work on this fun problem. And then eventually after enough of those like fun things that I kind of don't get to do unless I make my own engine, I was like, wait a second, like, I could just make my own engine, then I get to do all of it. <laughs> so there was some tipping point where it was like, oh, actually, it makes more sense for me to do this than not to do this. Like you've accumulated enough reasons to do it that like all the basics of rendering and stuff like that, that otherwise would be like, well, that's so much work. It becomes like, well, is it that much work if I want to get all these other things that I can't get any other way? Yeah. And on top of that, like, it all individually seemed fun. And, you know, a lot of people will, I think they'll look at making a game engine as like an insurmountable task. But like the important thing is, is like, I was not taking this seriously at the time. Like I wasn't trying to ship a game. I was just trying to have fun. So it didn't matter to, you know, 20 year old me, if this was the kind of thing where I'd have like 3D objects on the screen at the end of the month or the end of the year or at the end of five years, like I didn't really care. I just thought like all of these individual tasks seem like fun things to distract me while I'm bored. So so I'm going to try to do them. And I didn't necessarily think I'd be successful either. You know, I didn't look at this and think like, oh, this is an achievable project that I can definitely like do a good job at. And I, I didn't necessarily think, oh, I can do better than the engine I'm using now or than other engines out there. I just thought I just want to because it'll be fun. And what I found through doing that is that, yeah, making a large general purpose engine is a lot of work, but making an engine in general that does some cool stuff, it's totally doable. I mean, it's work. It's not like some insurmountable task that like only a wizard can do or something. You just got to learn some stuff. And so, I, you know, I learned some stuff. <laughs> and one of those things was C++. It's more work than using an off-the-shelf engine, but it's not as much work as making something that covers every use case. If it's like just scope to your use cases for your particular game, then it's a lot less. Exactly, yeah. And then, you know, once you have that engine that you wrote that way, it can make your life a little easier. You know, like I'll go and use Unity or something for other people sometimes. And there's a lot of really great things about Unity. I'm glad it exists. Or when I'm teaching the class in Unity, I'll use it, right? But sometimes I'll spend half an hour trying to find the button to turn on shadow mapping. And you know, all <laughs> I can think during that half an hour is like, I could have written a shadow mapper instead of looking <laughs> for that stupid button. Where's the stupid button, you know? But if you write something for yourself, you know, you know the kinds of things that you like to do in games and you just automate all those things. You know, you don't make it do everything, but you make it do the things that you need it to do and do those things very well. It's sort of the classic problem of like using off the shelf things in general in programming, right? Like there's some threshold as well where it's like, you know, I could have just done this myself. And like maybe I'm doing all these like contortions and trying to fit myself into fit my use case into this thing that's like not quite what I want. At some point it's like, you know what, I'm just going to make it myself. Yeah, you also get that frustrating feeling where like you feel like you don't really know what's happening. If you do it yourself, then even if it takes longer, you at some point come to a place where you like you fully understand what's going on. But then when you're using something else, I don't know, I don't like not understanding things. So 
you know, pragmatically, maybe, you know, it's fine not to understand things sometimes, but like, I don't like the feeling. I mean, I'm okay with temporarily not understanding something. That's an exciting feeling, but I don't like permanently not understanding something. So it's frustrating when like, this is a real example that the finding the button to turn on shadow mapping thing. Like, I, I mean, I know where the button is, but there's like, it doesn't work. And then you have to like check off a bunch of other stuff. And I never remember this. So, you know, there's probably actually a good reason that like you need to like configure everything just the right way. But because I don't have access to the source, because even if I did, honestly, I probably wouldn't go read it because of that. I never come out of it thinking, ah, now I understand shadow mapping in unity. What do I really come out with every time is, ah, I'm going to forget that again next time. <laughs> Yeah. Your story about how you sort of got into like game engine development and stuff like that reminds me a lot of how I got into making a programming language in the sense of initially when I started out, I was like, oh, you know, I'm using like this language Elm that I really like, but there's some use cases that it's not designed for. And well, that's okay. But, you know, uh, maybe someday it'll be useful for those things too, or, or like, you know, designed for those use cases. And then I'm like, oh, it'd also be kind of cool to try this thing out. Oh, but that doesn't really make sense in the context of Elm. And then eventually the list just got big enough where I was like, maybe I should just make a programming language. And yeah, it also rings true the idea of, it sounds really daunting at the outset, like you make a whole programming language, but actually it's it's like a whole collection of things that are pretty exciting to work on, except that ordinarily it'd be really hard to justify working on them if you don't have like a sufficient goal in mind. It's like, well, yeah, I could spend a couple of years doing this and then have nothing to show for it why would i do that first of it's like well actually i could have something really cool to show for it if i worked on this for several years that to me is motivating it sounds like a similar way to how it motivates you yeah no it is really similar and and i made a scripting language for my game engine in it's a slightly different route but a pretty similar route in that like i was i was trying to use i wanted to use lua because like that that lua has a nice c api it has this set jump long jump thing in there that drives me crazy but other than that it's a very nice c api the details don't matter, but the, but there was this the way they do error handling with set jump long jump is a pain, and I really like statically typed languages. For me, I didn't have enough kind of things to fully justify doing it. But what I decided was I'll spend a week trying to make my own programming language to prove to myself that that's a ridiculous thing to do, and then I'll suck it up and I'll use Lua. But like at the end of the week, instead of concluding this is a ridiculous thing to do. I concluded, this is a fun thing to do. You don't owe the world pragmatism. You're allowed to do things just because they're fun. Right now, I'm trying to ship my game. I'm trying to get it out this summer. So right now, I'm not like going to go build a bunch of new programming languages or something, right? But like at the time when I was just experimenting, you know, there were no deadlines. And if writing a programming language seemed like fun, I should do it. You know, a lot of people on Reddit would be like, don't do that. Then your game will never come out. And it's like, well, all right. I mean, it depends on what your goals are, right? And, and also like, I mean, I really do think pragmatism is overrated. Like, I mean, if you have to pay your bills, you have to pay your bills, right? But like, in terms of like deciding what to work on in your free time, if I hadn't decided to go write a game engine, which I'm sure so many people would have told me not to do if I had bothered asking anyone, then I probably wouldn't have gotten those tech jobs that I got afterwards. And if I hadn't gotten those tech jobs, I probably wouldn't have enough money saved to be mostly full-time indie right now. And I'm not saying that like I planned that all out and I knew that would happen. It's just that like, it's really hard to predict the future. So like, I think it's very reasonable to say, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm going to have fun. As long as you have like a backup plan and you're like, you know, the important stuff is all sorted out, like just work on fun stuff. Usually good things come out of that. It's interesting to think about how frequently people will tell you, you should not do X or like, there's no point in doing X. And then in the same breath, be like, Ooh, somebody made a new X. That's really cool. Like, 
how did that happen? It's just, it's magic. It just appeared out of nowhere. It's like, no, it's clearly someone at some point, almost certainly, despite having been told by other people, don't do X. There's no point in doing X. You're wasting your time doing X. It can't be done. They decided I'm going to do it anyway. And then that's how we get new things. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard for me not to think that there isn't this element of like, I don't know if this is really what it is or not, but, but it's, it's hard for me not to think that people don't want you to do it because they're like, if you could do it, then why aren't I doing that with my time? And I don't feel that way about other people. I don't care what other people do with their time, but I do kind of wonder if there's like this like envy thing going on or something. I don't know, but pe people get very adamant sometimes, especially with game engines. They get very, very adamant. Like you shouldn't make a game engine. You should just make your game. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know why people have such strong opinions about it. Right? I get it if I was asking for advice. You know what? It's usually like on Reddit or something. So I shouldn't even say that. It's just <laughs> like Reddit just has weird opinions. In person, people are just usually like, maybe they're a little surprised you made a game engine, but they don't usually care. So yeah, I, I take that all back. It's just people on Reddit being people on Reddit. It's just Reddit. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely think there's an element of, it's good to give people cautions, like to be like, well, just so you know what you're getting yourself into, like, here's what that road looks like. But that's very different from just being adamant that they not do it. It's one thing to say, just so you know, if you want to do a game engine yourself, it's probably going to take you a couple of years. You're going to have to learn a lot of different things. You're going to have to write a lot of code that's not directly required for your game in the sense that you could find something close to, if not quite what you want, off the shelf. So if you're okay with all those trade-offs, you know, that's what you're getting yourself into. But that's very different from being like, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you ever, you know? And I'm not a game developer, but I've heard similar sentiments for other things, for sure, <laughs> in the programming world, and often on sites like Reddit and Hacker News, to be fair. Yeah, why would you go teach yourself a bunch of valuable skills that are used in like high-paying jobs for fun? I think you're right. I think it's very good to make sure people know what they're getting into. So like, you know, if someone really wants to get a game out and that's what's important to them, then like, yeah, you probably want to let them know like, hey, you know, you could just download Unity or something. I'm glad that we have general purpose engines like Unity and Unreal because a lot of games get made that probably wouldn't get made otherwise. But if we want those engines to keep existing, we do need like some number of people from the next generation of game developers to be interested in writing engines, right? Because if everyone says writing an engine is ridiculous, just use something off the shelf, then 10 years from now, who's going to maintain Unity? Who's going to maintain Unreal? Who's going to make the thing to replace Unity and Unreal? And it's the same thing with programming languages. It's the same thing with any big endeavor. Like You do need some number of people to still be doing the thing. You don't want it to be lost to time. Yes, I totally agree. I'm surprised how many parallels keep coming up with this language I'm working on. But I have had a very similar experience specifically when it comes to type inference in like the Hindley Milner type inference. So Hindley Milner type inference has some really nice properties such as as long as you don't use certain type system features that break this, which are definitely not necessary, you can have 100% complete decidable principle type inference, which means that you can have zero type annotations in your entire program and the type inference will infer all of your types 100% correctly. It'll never get it wrong. And it will always infer the most general type, which is to say that you can never add a type annotation and that would make your type more flexible. You can only ever add one that makes it less flexible. So it's a great property. Everything about it's like lots of nice properties all around. However, implementing a Hindley-Milner type inference system that runs fast, like that has good performance, is this really difficult thing to do. It's like lots of really fiddly, like very easy to have off by one errors. Like there are these numbers you have to like increment and decrement in the right places. And if you get 
even one of them wrong, the symptoms that you get are extremely unhelpful to like tracking down where you, you got off by that one thing. If I'm understanding correctly, there's kind of a bunch of math going on. And so like it, you're going to get very seemingly unrelated, like you have a bug in one place and it's going to make the types somewhere else just kind of not make sense. Right. So there was this really obscure bug in the Elm programming language for like years where it was really difficult to trigger it. It was like really hard to reproduce. It was like only if you did things in like a certain very particular way. And like, so it only came up in like really big programs. And it's like, why did it think it was this thing? Why not that thing? And then eventually Evan solved it. And the git diff for the solution was like three lines. And it was like increment here instead of there. You know, it was like, that was it. And that solved the bug. And part of the reason that I think this is so tricky is that number one, there aren't that many languages that use Hindley Milner type inference. There's like Elm, Haskell, like ML, OCaml, and then like toy research languages kind of. I mean, there's the, literally are some of those, like I think Idris probably does it. Well, maybe not because they use dependent types. I'm actually not sure what they use. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But there are some academic papers about how to do this. The problem is that most of the papers don't focus on how to do it fast. They just focus on like, here's the basic algorithm. It's like, well, okay, if I implemented it literally like that, my compiler would be super slow. So like, how do I do the fast one that actually like runs really fast? So there's one paper that does that and it's called The Essence of ML Type Inference. And it describes how to do it, but it's incredibly dense. And it's like an excerpt from some like broader thing. It's like the, the beginning of the paper says like chapter 10, the essence of ML type inference. And it's like a little over 100 pages long. And it like describes how to do it using all sorts of like very dense terminology. And like, it's really difficult to read. It's basically the way that Evan made Elm's type checker was like, he just read this paper over and over He's like, you have to read it like eight times and then you maybe kind of get it well enough to like implement the thing. For Rocks Compiler, we didn't do that at all. We basically just like literally translated Elm's type inference system like line for line from Haskell, which is what Elm's compiler is written into Rust. And then whenever we would have bugs, we would go through and look at the like behind the scenes numbers and just like print them out on our side and print out what Elm was doing and be like, oh, our numbers are off by this much. We must have forgotten a thing somewhere. Yep. Okay. We forgot an increment here, or a decrement there, and then make it do more exactly what Elm does was the solution. I have to imagine that there's some analogy here with game engines where there's a very small number of reference code bases to look at for like how certain things are done. Like, I don't know, soft shadows, let's say. I actually don't know what soft shadows are, but I guess I can guess they kind of look fuzzy. It's, it's exactly of like hard like edges. It. Okay. If yeah. you remember like older games, the shadows always had a hard edge which is not usually realistic. And then more recent games, maybe they're blurred or even better, maybe they're blurred based on the distance between the occluder and the surface. But yeah, that's, that's what a soft shadow is. Okay, yeah. So I don't know if that one's a good example. Like maybe that one's pretty easy, but, but I'm sure there are some things where it's like, how do you do that? And the answer is like, well, there's maybe one really, really dense piece of writing, if you're lucky, that explains how to do it. And or you need the source code to like Unreal or Unity or something like that. <laughs> like, those are the ways to find out how to do it. But like you said, what's the next generation going to do? Like, somebody's got to do that. Somebody's got to sort of like carry that along or else at some point you get to a state where finding out how to do these things literally becomes archaeology. Like, I was fortunate enough to have Evan to talk to and he like helped me out with some of these things. Although in some cases I would ask like, hey, I don't understand this. How does that work? And he just laughed. He's like, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer it's just like you're gonna just have to stumble through it you know he doesn't know how it works either it's just there's no like formal way that this knowledge is transmitted from one generation to the next the best example i can think of of this is windowing code on windows for example so when you're making a game you have to open a window first and you have to get a graphics context in that window 
So maybe using OpenGL or DirectX or Vulkan, but you need some way of saying, hey, here's a window and it needs to show that stuff in it. And then I need to get input from devices and stuff. And on its surface, that doesn't sound too complicated, right? It sounds like, well, every application needs to make a window, right? So presumably there's just some function you call that makes a window. The problem is that every application doesn't do that. Like almost every application you use now is either going through some kind of framework like Qt or it's like using Electron. So it's just actually a browser. When you really look at it, like there's actually not that many applications that are like natively written in Windows coming out. And then when it comes to games, people are either using engines that already have it sorted out or they're using libraries like SDL, which the purpose of the library is to abstract out window management and input on many different platforms. And so that's great. I'm glad that, that exists, but it means that like there's not a lot of people you can ask questions to. One thing I've been thinking about recently is, you know, these kinds of abstractions are very, very powerful. It's good to have them. It makes sense that someone would say, hey, like a lot of people want to make games on multiple platforms. Let's abstract out the windowing code. But one thing that I think happens, and I don't think there's really anything you can do about this. I think this is just the way of things. But when you make an abstraction, it makes it easier when you use the abstraction, but it also lets whoever is underneath the abstraction make their thing more complicated, right? Now that everyone's using SDL or Electron or whatever, Microsoft can do whatever they want to the layer underneath, and only a few people need to deal with it. And on the bad side of it is like the docs don't need to be good. Things can just kind of be weird and glitchy as long as like a couple code bases know how to work around it. On the good side, right, it could let them maybe do more advanced things that most people wouldn't want to deal with. So this is maybe like a little ahistorical because I'm not like a assembly programmer, but I imagine maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, but but I imagine that. Uh, back when people were writing you know, machine code by hand or assembly a lot, probably those instruction sets were much simpler. And I'm guessing that the reason they're so complicated now is because the people designing them know we're going to go through a compiler, which is kind of a good thing, right? It means that you can make the hardware more powerful. And it's like, it would be very hard, I imagine, to write a lot of this stuff by hand, but it's designed knowing you won't, or at least I assume. I don't really have anyone to ask that question to, but I assume that's kind of what happened. I don't know for sure either, but that certainly fits with my understanding of things. <laughs> a common exercise that we're going through, like because it's like we're really performance oriented with Rock, like both in terms of the compiler running fast, but also the compiled applications running fast. And so a common thing that we'll do when looking at like standard library functions is trying to figure out, okay, how can we make this ergonomic and you know less error prone than like a C or C++ while also still being as fast? And a common way that we'll do that is be like, well, is there one processor instruction that does exactly what we want? And there are so many of them now. A common thing we'll do is we'll go to godbolt.org, G-O-D-B-O-L-T.org. I know you know about this, but for, for people who don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everyone should go to that website. I can never find the run button, but once you find the run button, <laughs> that's totally true. I have the same experience. <laughs> well, usually I'm not running it though, right? Usually I'm like- That's true, yeah. yeah. I just want to see the, the uh, compiled assembly code. But I'm constantly surprised by like, like what I'll do is I'll, I'll start with Rust source or C++. I usually just Rust or C or, or Zig because I know those languages. I don't really know C++ <laughs> anymore. Then I'll just write out something like, I'm like, okay, I want to see if we can like, can we compare two floats, but have it be that not a number is equal to not a number instead of not equal to? Because like for like sorting purposes, that's kind of what you want. You want all the NANDs to get sorted in the same place. Otherwise they just like float wherever they used to be and makes the sorting worse and like everything's a disaster i would write out like an actual sorting function that did this and then just see what it compiled to with optimizations turned on and it's just like 
there's one instruction for that. What? (laughs) It has some like, you know, eight digit name, like half of which are consonants. And like, I have no idea how how I'm supposed to pronounce that or like what it's short for. But it's like, sure enough, there, there is one CPU instruction for that now. I can't imagine that like back in the day when people were writing these by hand, it was like, oh, yes, I've memorized all several hundred instructions here. It's like, no, they probably had a pretty small set of primitives. And it was only when we started like having higher level languages and compilers that the more esoteric ones started showing up. That's my guess. Yeah, like it makes a lot of sense to me. And I've had a similar experience recently. I've been trying to learn to do SIMD stuff. I let myself kind of do non-pragmatic stuff like part-time for fun. And then I get back to like trying to get the game done. So one of my (laughs) non-pragmatic things is like, why are all my vector types not SIMD? Like I'm pretty sure every CPU can support a four component float vector. So like, why the heck am I doing four times as much math as I need to? And I'm noticing like, yeah, there's just like a hundred, you know, there's just like pages and pages and pages and pages of like these like SIMD low level like calls I can make that I'm pretty sure just map to like one instruction on the hardware or one or two. There's like six consonants in a row. And I'm like, yeah, I don't. It's like, you can't just search the page for like the thing you want because you don't know what it's going to be called. You just got to like read through all of them. I imagine that the reason that that interface is that way is because if you're going to be using a compiler, you want to give the compiler that kind of control. So it's actually kind of a good thing, even though it makes it harder to hand write. But yeah, I do worry about like, if you have too few people doing work at that level, then at some point the knowledge is just kind of gone. And like, I feel like with some parts of windowing code on Windows, we're dangerously close to that. Like just getting a window open, like you, you can just read the examples. It'll, it'll mostly work the way they say. But like, there are some subtleties of like how to get the stuff working well for a game. The only way to really figure it out is to look at the docs, also look at like Raymond Chen's write-ups where I hate to say this, like the write-ups are great, but a lot of the times they're like, why would you ever do this? This is obviously wrong. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I would ever have known that. Like you have access to the source code. I don't, it's not <laughs> obvious to me that that's wrong. It's like, you have to read like a Raymond Chen blog post, the documentation, look at the source code for SDL, which may not be right. Like sometimes you look at the source code for SDL and you're like, oh, they're doing it wrong. SDL is great, but it's just, this stuff's hard to do, right? And so you cross-reference all this stuff and then you test on like every computer you own and then like you get something that you're pretty sure is right. And it's like, we're just teetering on the edge of like literally nobody (laughs) knows how to do this anymore. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I believe it. Unlike with having a bunch of different instructions for like how to do SIMD math or floating point, I don't know that we're getting much value out of this. (laughs) I feel like it's getting harder to do. And as a result, it's just harder to do. An interesting comparison point that comes to mind is JavaScript. And the reason that that comes to mind is because JavaScript is an interesting case where you sort of have both. You have, it's very common for people to put frameworks on top of it, like, you know, React being the most popular today. I remember back when jQuery was the most popular. And also like people are using it as a compilation target, like TypeScript being the biggest one that compiles to JavaScript, Elm being the second biggest, but it's a distant second <laughs> ahead of like CoffeeScript and Dart, which is which is kind of cool. But, you know, obviously TypeScript is just totally dominant. So it's a compilation target and it's a being wrapped by frameworks. And they're also making new first class APIs all the time under the assumption that people will continue to use it as a first class, like normal thing, even though that's like extremely rare these days. As an aside, I, I remember I spent a lot of time in my career as like a front end uh, web developer. So doing like JavaScript and then later Elm, CoffeeScript. And just remembering that like in that world, 
quote unquote closer to the metal means less frameworky, less compiled to JavaScripty, more raw JavaScript, which of course, now that I'm like getting into the even lower levels, I'm aware of like, that's not really at all close to the metal. We're, we're still like many, many layers between <laughs> JavaScript and the actual metal. And I'm also aware that even like where I am now, where I'm going to like godbolt.org and looking up individual CPU instructions, that's still not as close to the metal as someone who actually works on the hardware itself. And is like, I remember learning about like CPU pipelines and stuff like that. It's like, wait a minute. So it's not even as straightforward as like, I literally know what the instructions are going to the CPU but I actually don't even have an accurate mental model of what the CPU is doing with them because it's not just doing them one at a time. Like, oh, do this, then do this, then do this. Not even close. <laughs> yeah, that, like, that was mind-blowing to me. So the, the first time that I found out that the instructions aren't just you wait till one finishes, then you go to the next, yeah. blew my mind. And it blew my mind even more is I still don't understand. Like, Maybe someone who works in this stuff could tell me, oh, it's not really that bad, or maybe it really is. But I still don't understand like how it on the fly can make those decisions about like how to pipeline the instructions and how much to kind of mush them together and let them overlap and reorder them and stuff. Like to me, that seems like the kind of thing that if you let me work on it, I could maybe do it, but it would end up like being complicated and slower because it was spending all the time deciding how to do it. But somehow it's like on the fly doing it. To me, that's like magic. But I mean, every time something seems like magic, once you get a close enough look at it, it starts to make sense. I don't know. Maybe someone who knows this stuff can show me how it actually works, but super cool. Dan Liu writes about that. He used to work at a company that makes CPUs and stuff. This is definitely not the right term, but it feels like from his writings about it, almost like they were like an indie CPU manufacturer. But really what (laughs) I mean is like, they're a CPU manufacturer that's not named Intel or AMD or, you know, Apple. But basically, he writes about this stuff in a good deal of depth. And he's now a software developer. So he, he does a pretty good job of bridging the terminology gap. But I still like, even after reading some of his blog posts, but this is a D-A-N-L-U-U dot com. And I still don't totally understand it for sure. It's more like, okay, now I'm aware. Like he wrote an entire, like very long article just about branch prediction. I just Googled his name. I've read some of his blog before and it's great. And that's the first one that came up is branch prediction. There you go. Yeah. It goes into a ridiculous amount of depth, at least by my standards, (laughs) on like how that works. I mean, I was just surprised about just to learn about it branch prediction in general. So like for those who don't know, branch prediction is basically if you have a quote unquote branch, like a conditional where the processor is going to either run one set of instructions or another. In other words, you have like an if then else, either it's going to write the thing, run the thing after the then, or it's going to run the thing after the else. So what's surprising is that because processors are often bottlenecked on, for example, the most common one is waiting for memory to go from one place to another. Okay, tangent in the middle of my (laughs) explanation of branch prediction, I recently learned that a big part of why Apple's new M1 processors are so fast is literally just that they moved the memory physically closer to the CPU. Oh, wow. That's it. Makes sense. Yeah, because at those high speeds, literally like the speed of light of electricity flowing like across your, you know, the circuit board is a factor in performance, like a significant factor. And so just the fact that on a lot of machines, the memory is like a couple of millimeters away from the processor is like a significant performance cost. And so they, they actually like moved it closer, basically like att- almost attached it to the CPU. It's kind of how I understand it. And so that's one of the reasons that like a lot of times your processor is going through and it's like, okay, do, 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 doing some addition, doing some subtraction. 
And then it's like, oh, and now I need, go need to like load something from memory onto the CPU so I can do addition of subtraction on that. And just that like loading the memory potentially takes like a hundred times or like a thousand times longer than like doing an addition or subtraction operation. And so what it tries to do is it tries to do like while waiting for that, it tries to keep going and do other stuff like ahead of time, like pre-do some like future work if it can, if it know if it already has enough information to do that, like other work while waiting for the memory to come back to like unblock the other thing that it was doing. And so the branch prediction idea is like, well, at some point you get to this conditional and it's like, well, I either need to run this set of instructions or that set of instructions. I don't really know which set of instructions I'm going to run because it kind of depends on the result of that conditional. So it just guesses like, okay, let's just assume that it's false. I don't know. And if it's false, then I'm going to do all this work. So I'm just going to go ahead and do all that work. And then when I actually get there for real, if it turns out it was true, I'm like, oh, dang, all that work I did ahead of time was wasted. So I need to go back and redo it in the other branch because it actually was true. It's this weird thing where if it guesses right, it's almost like you get all this work done, quote unquote, for free because it did it while it was waiting for something else to happen. But if it guesses wrong, then there's this enormous performance difference. I say enormous, but it's not like a second. I mean, it's like, you know, enormous number of nanoseconds, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> relatively speaking. And so because of this, I was always trying to like guess how the branch predictor was going to go and try to like order my conditionals. So I'd be like, okay, let's, the heuristic that I somehow developed, I don't even know if this is accurate or not, because I've noticed optimizers will switch these around. But the heuristic I developed is that it will assume that if you have like an if then else, the then part is probably what it's gonna, the branch predictor is gonna assume is correct. That's the heuristic I developed for whatever, for whatever reason. But I know that it uses a lot more information than that. Like it uses stuff like, what's the operation in the conditional? If it's like a floating point error thing, it's like, well, errors usually don't happen. So, you know, let's assume, like if you're comparing to, is this something NAN or not? It's like, well, that's, that's pretty rare. So let's assume that that won't happen is apparently like one of the things they could consider they being the CPU itself. <laughs> and so, yeah, like Dan wrote this whole article on like how branch predictors work in a great deal of depth. One of the things I recall him mentioning was that like the hardware manufacturers don't like to talk about how the heuristics work. And I get why, because if a bunch of people start basing their software code, like relying on on that, oh, yeah. now they're boxed into a corner. They can't like come up with a new, better heuristic because it's going to break all these existing optimizations. So people are going to be mad because they're like, you told me if I wrote it like this, then it would get correctly branch predicted. Now it's <laughs> it's broken. The layers of complexity to all this are just mind-boggling. <laughs> for anyone who's hearing about branch prediction for the first time, there's a really great like Stack Overflow question where uh, someone asks, how come summing the, the numbers in this sorted list is faster than summing them in this unsorted list, which seems kind of crazy. So, so you look at the code to see like, okay, you, you see a question like that and you're like, well, that has to be wrong. Like they must've made a mistake adding up a bunch of numbers. You should get the same result regardless of what order the numbers are in. So you take a look at their code and what they're doing is they're actually only summing the numbers that are like above or below a certain value or something. So they have a big loop. It's going over an array and it's saying, if the number is, I don't know, less than 128, then like add it to this like running total. And you're like, and it's like, okay, so that's a little more complicated than just summing some numbers, but why would summing up a bunch of random numbers versus a bunch of sorted numbers, even if you're only picking the smaller ones from them, like shouldn't that be exactly the same cost? It's exactly the same number of additions. You know, if you go to school and you go to about big O notation, you're like, yeah, it's O of N, both of them are O of N. Yeah, you know, right. 
What's the, what's the difference? And the answer, you know, the answer goes into more detail, but, but the answer is, is branch prediction. If you sort the numbers, then when you say if, you know, you're going through each number in this array, and for each one you say, if this number is less than 128, then do something with it. Well, it turns out that even a, you know, a very basic branch predictor should be able to figure out like, well, you know what? This is true almost every single time. And you should just assume it's true if it's sorted, right? If you're starting from small numbers going bigger and then you know, eventually it stops being true and you know, maybe it misses a couple branches and then it goes, oh, now it's false every single time, right? On the other hand, if it's a randomized list, then it's just randomly true, false, true, false, false, true, true, false, true. And the branch predictor is just going to be wrong all the time. And that's enough, assuming you have like a million numbers that you're adding up or whatever, to make a actually like very measurable difference in performance, which is if you haven't ever seen that before, it's kind of mind boggling because <laughs> it really just seems like both of these pieces of code are doing the same thing. Right. Yeah, I seem to recall that one of the most basic branch predictor heuristics is it's like, well, if I've seen this before, assume it's going to be the same thing it was last time. And one of the big motivations for that is actually loops. Because like if you have a loop, every time you check that conditional, it's going to be false, 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 false. Oh, true. And now we break out of the loop. Yeah. I never even, I didn't even consider that one, but that, that probably is the motivation because that's like almost every loop ever. It comes up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> actually, like literally every loop ever, right? Like if your loop's ever going to exit, presumably you're checking for the same condition. Like you're not going to check for a different condition each time. So, I mean, that makes sense. And even if you were going to check for, I think it's necessarily true. Even if you were checking for different conditions, yeah, you could have returns to, I don't know. I think there's no way to write a loop that isn't infinite, that doesn't at some point check the same condition every time. Because even if you have multiple conditions, how are you deciding which condition to check? This doesn't really matter. But the point is, is like, yeah, <laughs> this just comes up in every single loop. So let's get even one step wilder. One of the things that I was reading about, and I think this, again, might have been a Dan Liu article. At this point, I'm just assuming that all human knowledge is in that one Dan Liu article. So you should probably read oh, it. Oh, I figured out how to do it. You can violate this principle by changing a function. There's no reason you would, but you could just change a function pointer each time. So there's no conditional, but it's like a conditional <laughs> by setting a function pointer. I don't know. Can the branch predictor guess where a function pointer is going to go? I have no idea. Anyway, I, yeah, I don't know how it interacts with those. <laughs> That's the only way I think you could violate, violate this principle of every loop checks the same conditional every time. Right. <laughs> even to set the function pointer, you'd have to, uh, you have a function pointer in an array of function pointers and you increment it so there's no branching. <laughs> this is a good project if you want to just like really go way out of your way to make the CPU run slower. <laughs> this is how you do it. <laughs> As I recall, one of the interesting heuristics that the branch predictors commonly use is they try to figure out, and remember, like if, it, if you're a CPU, you don't have access to the source code, so you don't know if this is a for loop or not. You just have these really low-level instructions. One of the ways that it tries to guess whether or not this is a condition in a for loop versus in like an if-then-else is that it will look at whether the jump, because the, the way the conditionals work is it's like jump from, like if this is true, then jump to this other instruction. And the heuristic they use is if the jump is forwards, it's probably an if then else. Cause you're like, oh, if this, if this is true, then jump to the else. But if it jumps to an earlier instruction, then it's probably like, oh, this is, we're probably at the end of a loop and we're deciding whether we want to loop back and do it again, or we're done with a loop and continue on. <laughs> so it's pretty wild. I also remember learning about why floats work the way that they do like ieee 754 floats everyone's favorite with not a number and infinity and all those weird behaviors and a lot of their design decisions actually to me make sense in the context of the design constraints they were working with originally i don't know if i would have done it a lot differently even with the benefit of hindsight than what they ended up doing but those are weird 
hardware constraints of like all these people trying to get all the CPU manufacturers to standardize on something. It's like, well, what if the only primitives you have to work with are it's a CPU <laughs> and that's it. You don't have a lot of options in terms of how to represent errors and stuff like that. The floats are interesting in that I've kind of gone through the same thing in my head a few times. I mean, we've talked about it, but but I've also just separately, like when I was designing my language, right? Like I was like, ah, floats are kind of weird. What if we made them better? There may be room to do that at a language level. What I keep kind of coming back to is, yeah, they're, they're kind of weird, but like there are reasons. Sometimes things are weird and there's just not really that good a reason or it's kind of maybe there was a reason at the time and it no longer makes sense anymore. But every time I try to change how floats work to make them better, I make them worse. So I ended up just deciding, okay, floats just, at least for now, they just do exactly what they do in every other language. I found it very difficult to make changes that didn't end up having unforeseen effects. I mean, we've talked and I think there are maybe some small things that you, know, you can do. One of the big ones that's important to me is determinism. Well, a lot of people never think about this. They kind of see floats as like, yeah, you're just doing some math. You know, the one level above that is when you realize like, oh, geez, like on different computers, like my floating point calculations are coming out different and people conclude, oh, floats are like not deterministic. You could just like get a different answer every time. And that's not quite it either. Like in reality, if you do the exact set, same set of instructions on the same computer, you should get the same result. If you don't, something really bad is happening and you should maybe get a new computer. I don't know. I've had, like, that's just not a realistic thing. The places you get into trouble are if your compiler reorders instructions, like maybe you compile for Mac and you compile for Windows and it does A plus B plus C on one and B plus C plus A on another. Algebraically, those are equivalent, but in floating point, they're not. The rounding will be different. It can also come out different if you have like square roots or sine cosine, which maybe you have a different lookup table on one computer than another you get slightly different results. And that can become a problem for game programming. So lots of game developers working on like, a friend of mine recently published an article, I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but the game's Kung Fu Kickball. And he published an article about how he did his network system for it. And it involved not using floats and using fixed point instead, specifically because he needed deterministic results that were like identical exactly on every computer or the game wouldn't work. And what I would love to see is more languages saying, hey, that's not great. Let's just say the order of operations for floats is guaranteed by the compiler, regardless of the platform. And sine, cosine, square root, et cetera, are all supplied by the language and therefore identical on every platform. That is a change to floating point that like, there is no downside to that. That is, I cannot think of any downside. It's all just a win and it makes everyone's lives better. That makes sense to me. Yeah. The design constraints I was talking about were more like where things make sense to me, where things like, if the only primitives you have to work with are you're like, I can have this floating point value in a, one register and this one in another register. And then all I get to do with that is put something into a third register as the answer <laughs> to this operation. Like, how do you represent errors there? And the, not a number semantics that they came up with, as far as I can tell, were motivated by this is an error. And the way that you know it's an error is that, first of all, it propagates itself. So anytime you do anything with the error, the answer you get back is error. And if you ever try to do anything useful with this error, it's always useless. Like even if you try to ask, is it equal to itself? It's like, you know what? No, that's how useless it is. It's not like nothing works with this thing. It's just an error. So if you get one, you're in an error state, just deal with it and like get rid of it. And it was like, they're trying really hard to make an incentive to just throw this thing away and not keep it. And just like, you're just, it's, it's just an error. That's all it is, is an error. And if those are the only primitives you have to work with, it's like register, register into new register. And all you can define is like what, what those operations do. It's like, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. It's like, that's how else would you define an error and like really try to enforce hardcore that like this is an error and, and it's useless. 
But of course, it's still very annoying to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky because it, it makes sense on the low level that like they kind of just had to put it in band like that. But then even when you try to separate it out, you get into this question of like, do you want to check for the error after every operation that could potentially cause the error? And I'm usually, for most kinds of programming, I come down very strongly on yes, like check for the error. <laughs> if the function has returns an error code, check for it, right? Like don't check for it an hour later, don't check for it somewhere else in the call stack, check for it right there. But then like, you know, I'm writing a physics engine or whatever, and I like multiply a billion matrices by each other. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, I kind of don't need to know, at least in a release build, I, I don't really need to, I, I just need to know at the end, you know, like did this succeed or not? And I don't really want to have a bunch of conditionals inside of there checking each time. Though I think you've gone a little deeper into this than me. I don't know how like the signaling NANDs work and maybe that's a way out that doesn't involve like a bunch of if statements or something. Actually, I looked into this for Rock, not signaling. So signaling NANDs are kind of their own thing, but this was specifically, there is a way that you can set a flag in the CPU that says whenever you would get a NAND, or actually like there's a couple of different things you can specify. You can even get as granular as like, if there would be precision loss, which of course happens all the time with floats, then like, Give me an interrupt, basically, the equivalent of like throwing an exception, but for CPUs and operating systems. I actually have not been able to find a way on like, I happen to be trying this out on my Mac M1. I completely was unable to find a way to enable this on them. The best I could find was like a Stack Overflow question of like someone else being like, hey, I can't get this to work on an M1. And like someone from Apple responded like, oh, you should just be able to do this. And they're like, it didn't work. And that was the end of the conversation. Like... <laughs> So it seems like interest in supporting this is like dwindling. And I'm actually not even sure if it's safe to assume it's going to be supported long term because it seems like nobody wants to do it that way, which is kind of a shame in my opinion. But I guess everybody's just kind of used to floats now and <laughs> that's how things are going to work. I'm curious, going back to the like game engine discussion, your game is called Way of Rhea, the one that you're working on right now. I assume that this is the one that you made the Rust game engine for. What was sort of the breakdown of like, how much time you spent making on the engine versus on like making the rest of the game? It's kind of hard to say because I was making the engine for fun for a while before I started making the game. And I could measure like how much time that was. Not all of that work is even still there because doing it for fun is like different than like, hey, here's a real game and like it needs to do these specific things. So I'd say that like now, you know, I'm at the point where 80, 90% of the time goes into the game. Because, you know, a lot of the engine's there and I'll go in and I'll improve things or add features or tweak things, but mainly I'm just working on the game. But I definitely was working on an engine for fun for, let's see, maybe a couple years. I would say that code base was maybe a couple years old when I started the game. A bunch of the stuff that was in there, once I started a real game, I was like, oh, well, that's not, that's not how things should be. <laughs> so it's kind of tricky to measure. Yeah, because I guess there's always that feedback loop of like, once you actually try out the thing that you, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I will say. If you, I'm not going to tell anyone to make a game engine or not to make a game engine, but I'll say if you're making a game engine and you haven't made one before, if you made one before, maybe you know what you want. But if you haven't made one before, I would recommend making a game while you make the engine. It's hard to know what you want otherwise. I mean, even if it's just a toy game to test it out, but preferably a real game. I mean, again, do whatever you want. Like, don't, I'm just a random person on the internet. You're allowed to do whatever you want to do. But if you want to kind of get a good result, I think that would be good advice for most people. There were just a bunch of things where the second there was a real game that I wanted to like sell for money, I was like, oh, this isn't how the engine should work anymore. Got it. That makes sense. So how did you go about selling it for money? Did you put it on Steam or... 
Yeah, so it's pretty easy to put a game on Steam. You give them 100 bucks, and then you get a page, and you get that money back once the game sells. If I remember correctly, I don't think that's actually a cost. I think you literally get that money back, assuming your game makes more than that much. If it doesn't, then they get to keep the $100 or whatever. But I mean, if your game doesn't sell more than $100, then why did you make a Steam page for it? That doesn't mean that I think Valve is super friendly. They are taking 30% of all my profit, which I'm not happy about, but or of, of my revenue. So you, yeah, you can make a Steam page pretty easily. There are a lot of games on Steam. You're not going to necessarily make money just because you put a page up on Steam. You have to do a lot of work kind of getting yourself out there, talking about it. Speaking of which, it's a puzzle game. If you like puzzle games, you can check out the free demo of Way of Raya on Steam. You've got to go, go to conventions, talk to people, post about it in places online where the kind of people who like your game hang out. There's a lot that goes into like actually trying to get attention because there's 20 or 30 games that come out a day on Steam. Now, a lot of them aren't necessarily great. Like A lot of them are kind of just someone's test project. But still, that is a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of stuff that you're trying to stand out among. So you got to do a lot more than just like being someone that makes your own game engine. You're not just like learning all this stuff about low-level programming, but also there's just like the baseline being an indie game dev. You have to learn about all of this like marketing and like distribution and, <laughs> and all that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing the I'm doing the, the engine design, the scripting language design. The game design, which is of course, yeah, the most important part, right? And then the marketing and PR and stuff as well. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> but, but the cool thing is, like, I'm the kind of person that really wants to see the bigger picture. Like, I don't really like just working on one little piece of something and not knowing how it all adds up. For example, the fact that like I am doing the marketing and that I'm not like paying someone else to do it means I see like how all of these things connect. Right, And it informs what I'll do with my next game. The current game is a side-scrolling puzzle game. I'm very happy with it. I think it is a very good game. It is exactly the kind of like puzzle game that I would want to play. And I think that anyone who likes puzzle games will be very happy that they bought the game. That being said, because I'm the one doing the marketing and the one working on the game, I have realized that like it's not exactly the right genre to be in. I could do puzzle games, but, but just 2D side-scrolling puzzle game is very, very difficult to market. And because I'm the one doing it, I have a bunch of ideas about what I'll do differently next time that'll just make my life easier. And I can balance the engineering cost, the design challenge, and the marketing all together because I'm doing all three. And then if someday I decide to go and hire someone else to do any of these pieces, I know what goes into it now. I know how to evaluate that. Whereas if I started right off the bat with like, let me send a bunch of money to someone to market it, send a bunch of money to someone for PR, like I wouldn't really know what they were doing or if they were doing what I needed, and I wouldn't learn a lot of lessons from that. So that's kind of my my approach, and that's why I'm wearing way too many hats. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Like speaking of like really big picture stuff, I mean, and sort of like like how big the audience is. I guess there's an interesting similarity between that and technology adoption in the sense that I spent like four years writing this book, Element Action. I'm proud of how it turned out. And a lot of people have, you know, said they really liked it. And, you know, that, that's always like really gratifying to hear. I teach like a course on front end masters for about, about Elm. I also spend a lot of time on that. And a friend of mine also teaches the React course on front end masters. I haven't watched it. I have no idea like what the quality level is. I assume he did a good job because he seems like the type of person who would, who would do a good job with something like that. But I do know, like he mentioned to me at some point, like what his royalties are. And they're like an order of magnitude higher than like what mine are for, for the Elm course. Knowing nothing about what the you know relative quality level is or how much time we each put into that. The answer to like why that is, is pretty obvious, which is just that like, there's way more people using React than Elm. So there's just way more demand for it. And similarly, it's like, uh, like you're saying about like the marketing gives you insight into the audience and like, you know, stuff like that. 
It's like you're putting all this time and care into the game, but that doesn't necessarily translate into the dollars that you use to pay your bills as much as a like different game that you would also put a lot of time and effort and energy and care into just if it was in a different genre. <laughs> like yeah, changing exactly. nothing else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't decided for sure what my next game is yet. I have a couple directions I could go, but the way I'm thinking about it is like there's this big Venn diagram of stuff I care about and stuff other people care about, right? Uh-huh. And, and I got to pick something <laughs> in the middle there, right? Like, because if I'm going to do something that I don't care about and have it sell more, well, I might as well just go work for someone else's game company. The whole point of doing it myself is I get to choose things that I care about. But also, if I'm going to pick something that I care about that not enough other people care about, then it might as well just be a hobby because I do need to pay bills, right? So there is that intersection there where I think is where you want to be with this kind of stuff. That also comes up a lot, the like hobbyist versus professional dynamic. Like I think that Venn diagram is of much greater importance as soon as you're using it as like the way to pay the bills. Definitely a hobbyist guitarist. Like I like to play guitar, but like I watch a lot of videos about like guitar stuff and occasionally I'll watch a video about like someone talking about the like, oh, the professional side of things. And something that definitely comes up there is that like, yeah, a lot of professional guitarists are not playing the music that they really want to be doing. It's just in the intersection of like, well, they're okay with playing it or maybe even they like it a little bit, even if it's not their favorite type of stuff to play, but it pays the bills. <laughs> and at least it's like they're doing the thing that they like. It seems like it's pretty tricky to navigate that as an indie game dev. I, I can see that. Yeah, I never even thought about it in that context, Which, but it makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm a hobbyist guitarist too, and I've been picking up bass and I have blisters all over my fingers from it. But, you know, that makes sense. And I feel like there's this like spectrum, right? Like you could be at a point where like, you're a guitarist, that's your job, and you're playing stuff you hate, and you're just like, why am I doing this? You could also be like, I'm a guitarist, it's my job, I'm playing stuff I'm like okay with, you know, like, I get to do the thing I like, it might not be exactly, you know, you could then, you could also be like, hey, like, no, like, I'm writing music and selling it, and like, I'm making a living that way, and like, I am writing music I care about. If I was just like making it for no one, maybe I'd be in a different genre where this is also a cool genre that I care about. And, and I, but I picked it though, because I knew it was more marketable or you could be off in the other category, all the way on the other side of like, I'm just making stuff that I like. And maybe you get lucky and other people like it, but but maybe also you're just, you're just doing it for fun and that's fine. But you're not you know making rent that way. The most direct example of this I can think of that relates to your example of like thinking about the marketing and that influencing everything else was was someone was talking about sort of the economics of gigging and like playing at a bar. And he was like, well, so you're going to get a percentage of like the drinks that they sell at the end of the night. So you want to play music that encourages people to hang around and drink more. So if you get out there, like jamming out these like nonstop heavy metal, like, you know, just like really hard stuff, are people going to sit around and drink more? Well, probably not. So you're probably going to want to play something that's like a little bit more laid back. And maybe you play something that like, gets them like a little bit excited so they don't like get bored and leave. But, you know, you want to intersperse that with more chill stuff and, you know, just kind of prolong the evening for them. And it's like, yeah, that's what the bar wants too. So all of it makes sense. But, you know, what if that's not the type of music you want to play? Well, maybe you got to find something in the Venn diagram that <laughs> that fits your needs. I have a funny story about that. As a teenager, I played with this like funk metal band. And for some reason, someone hired us to play at like a... Mexican restaurant slash bar. Okay. Funk metal. <laughs> and yeah, and it's not like we misrepresented ourselves. Like our you could listen to us online. Like we're like screaming and playing heavy guitar and then there's like a DJ doing like scratch effects and stuff. So you're like rage against the machine. But and like slap yeah. bass. Right. Like <laughs> you know, like like it's like a, this is not but we figured like, hey, I mean, 
they know who we are and they hired us. So I guess that's what they want. Yeah. It was not what they wanted. Oh, no. <laughs> we got up there and like, you know, like, and everyone's like sitting there with their drinks, like just looking at us, like, why? Like, I can't, <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm here trying to like hang out, eat some chips and like meet people. And you're there. Like, it was like the most <laughs> awkward because we felt like we were obligated, you know, maybe current me would like realize like, okay, we got to like switch and like play something else. But we just felt like we were obligated to do our thing. So we're trying to be up there and run around and like play heavy music and, and you know, act into it. But we're not feeling into it because right. nobody else there is into it. You can tell. It was yeah. like literally yeah. the most <laughs> awkward like, hour of my life. Oh, wow. I wish there was a video. It would be amazing. Like it, it would probably look like if there was a video, I imagine it would look like staged, you know, because everyone it's, it was just so, oh my God. <laughs> that definitely sounds like a, like a scene out of a movie, right? Where like, <laughs> yeah, it, it would be in some movie about a band that makes it. And it would be like, you know, them trying stuff that didn't work when right, they were younger. Right. And then, you know, <laughs> but uh, no, the, the thing I've been thinking about recently is I think there are some people who, who would react strongly to this and be like, Oh, it's like selling out when you like find that intersection. And it's not right. Like selling out would be doing the thing you hate for money, not doing the, you know, the intersection. But, but more than that, I actually think, I mean, people are free to disagree with me on this, but I'm kind of coming around to this idea that like the art lies in finding that intersection. If you're making something that nobody but you likes, I'm not saying it's not art anymore, but like you're actually doing an easier thing. I don't know. Like I think about like a band like Slipknot, right? And it's easy to kind of be like, oh, it's like cringy. They have like these clown masks and stuff, but you know, they're really popular. And and the reason, at least I believe the reason they're so popular is that they found a way to play really technically interesting rhythms that you can dance to, right? Like you can listen. There's a lot of heavy bands out there playing complicated rhythms but like if you play them for someone who doesn't listen to that kind of music, they're just kind of like, I, I don't I don't know what's happening and I'm not enjoying this. But if you play Slipknot for someone who doesn't listen to metal, they might be a little like, why are you playing this for me? But they're going to start nodding their head. Like, <laughs> you know, like the thing is, is like it's fun. At the end of the day, those guys know that you're at the metal show to have fun. You're, you want to run around in circles and nod your head and wave your arms in the air and just like have fun. And like they figured that out and they're doing both right? They're doing the complicated, interesting stuff and they're having fun with it. And I feel like that's the real art. So to me, finding the intersection of the stuff you care about and the stuff other people care about is actually like a higher calling than the kind of what I think most people see as like this ideal, like I'm doing it only for me and I don't care what anyone else thinks. And then everyone loves it anyway. I think actually intentionally making something that is for you and for other people is like more meaningful. I buy that. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, we talked about a lot of cool stuff. (laughs) Anything else we should make sure to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, wait, I I got a question. So in terms of rock, what you're doing seems very cool to me. I'm not gonna be able to describe it as well as you, but I love the idea of a language where like the host application kind of is like this backend for it that decides like on a lower level, like what's happening. Cause that's what I want in games, right? You can just tell me the terms you use and I'll re-say that with the terms that you use. (laughs) Close enough. Okay. I love that because that's what I want when I'm working on a game, right? Like I want to have like a scripting language that lets me do some stuff quickly, but I want the engine to be able to decide like where the memory is allocated, stuff like that, right? Have you made a lot of effort to kind of get Rock out there to get attention to it? Have you had attention just kind of come to it naturally? Like where are you at in terms of marketing with the language? 
I'm taking a very intentional and unusual approach to that, which is I'm trying to get it out there while also rate limiting its growth. So what I mean by this is I'm trying to be both putting it out there, but not hyping it, if that makes sense. So I want people to know it exists, but I also want to be really, really clear that it's like not ready for production use yet. And if you want to try it out, you're totally welcome to try it out. But you can expect a lot of sharp edges and a lot of unfinished things, a lot of to do's and a lot of, you know, this doesn't work yet type stuff. Part of the reason for that, a big part of the reason for that is wanting to be able to make a lot of breaking changes without people feeling that I mess things up for them. Uh, so I just I want to really, really clearly set expectations there. And the other part of that is wanting to avoid hold off on making a first impression for like people who are not in that sort of niche of like, oh, I want to try a bleeding edge thing. Hold off on making that first impression until it's actually like so far along that it's something that's like really impressive and people are going to get a really nice experience out of it. So kind of my hope is that at some point I can give a really cool, very hypey presentation about like, look at all this amazing stuff. Wow. Whereas like right now, most of my presentations about it are like spending a lot of time talking about the problem and then about our solution. And then there's like one moment of like, and look, we got a really cool result. I would love to have some really flashy, like lots of demos and like bells and whistles. And But I want to hold off on doing that until it's actually like, if someone then goes and like, downloads the binary and tries it they actually have a good experience that it's not a, a ton of sharp edges and you know stuff like that like it is today so that's kind of how i'm thinking about it i know that's not normal in like language development it's usually like either it's completely behind closed doors for a long time and then like like at a big company and then they release it when they're like okay we feel that this is like a sufficient level of polish and there's no in between where anyone can really try it unless they work there or it's like like zig for example that's like open source from day one and just go and like just get the word out there and uh, so obviously set expectations but usually people aren't trying to take these like more extreme measures to set expectations so we'll see how it works out but i mean so far we've got 550 people are in the repo like so that's 550 people have individually sent me an email saying i want access to the repo and they said sure so that's not a very large number of programmers in absolute terms but that has translated into like a team of like recurring people who who do a lot of contributions of like 10 or so and then a pretty long tail of i think we have like 100 or something total like contributors in the repo yeah, i think it's less than 100 actually but i don't know double digits that's what we've been doing so far it seems to be working out <laughs> that seems like a smart strategy to me there was a time when i kind of shifted my strategy but there was a time when i was considering trying to license some of the tools that i've built for my engine it's actually remarkably similar to what i was considering doing I kind of thought about it and was like, well, I don't want to just put up a website and say anyone can buy this tool for X number of dollars. Because if I do that, if there's a problem, I get a million people with a bad impression of the tool. You know, however many people buy it. On the other hand, if I license it to like one person or to two people, right, two teams, then I can provide direct support to those people. And instead of it being like, oh, we ran into a problem, this tool sucks. It's like, oh, I ran into a problem. I emailed the person who made it, and then they sent me a patch a few hours later that like fixed the problem, which is actually a really good experience. And then I think that when you when you do things that way, I'm not actually planning on licensing my tools right now. I've kind of seen, I have a better understanding of like what other tools are out there, and just I don't think it's the right time for me to do that. But if I was going to license tools, I would do this. 
because you also, I think, if you're doing a, if you're doing good work, get advocates that way, right? You get the early adopters who want to tell other people about the cool new thing they're using. They're part of a very small group of people who know about it, and that's exciting. And they're excited that they get to talk to you and you get to help them, and then they get to tell other people. Whereas if you just kind of put it online for anyone to use, everyone runs into the same bug. You can't provide everyone individually support, and there's no one who is like able to be like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm one of the few people who've tried it, and I want to tell everyone now. So I think that like for a lot of reasons, starting small and growing intentionally and slowly for a lot of projects could potentially be a really good call. I mean, I'm just making this up. I haven't actually done it, but like theoretically, this seems like a good idea to me. Right. It's like trying to establish a reputation of it's not done yet versus a reputation of it's buggy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think you make a good point about like turnaround time on fixes is a big part of which reputation gets established. Turnaround time on fixes also is dependent on how many people there are available to work on fixes relative to how many bugs are being serviced by people using the software. Yeah. Say that you just released your tool or your language and you immediately get 20 people using it and they run into 20 different bugs and each of them runs into one bug and they each have one design change that they want and all these design changes are conflicting with each other and you have your own opinion. You just kind of get back into a corner. Whereas if you let it kind of mature slowly, then you have more say over the direction things are going. It seems like in that way, everyone can kind of have a better experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I hope we're both right about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Cool. Well, yeah, I think, I think we've covered a lot of ground. This is really fun. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me.